Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Defending the Faith, as we turn in our Bibles to James chapter 3, verses 13 to chapter 4, verse 4, as we hear a message entitled, Have Religions Fueled War? There are many who have a deep suspicion that religion is an altogether violent thing. You know, whether one thinks of the wars in the Old Testament or the Crusades in the Middle Ages or the modern crisis that lasted so long, let's say, in in Ireland between Protestants and Catholics, the slaughter in Kosovo and Bosnia, the constant fear of terrorism from Islamic extremists, you know, the civil war in Syria creating an unprecedented refugee crisis, the continuing and ongoing tensions between India and Pakistan or or those in various parts of the Middle East, I mean, on and on it goes. Religion always seems to play a key part. In his very famous song, Imagine, John Lennon calls his hearers to imagine a world in which there are no countries and in this, there is nothing to kill or die for. And then he adds, and no religion too. You know, in his ideal world, there would be no heaven or hell, no hope of eternity. And in this way, well, we'd all live in peace. Whatever you make of John Lennon's song, and I personally think it's silly, but yet the suspicion is surely there among many secular people that there will always be wars, but religion fuels wars, much as gasoline when it's thrown on fire. Religion only heats the blaze higher. Now, I wish you could say that the Christian faith has played no role in that. Uh, So let's remember the Crusades. In 841, Muslim armies sacked St. Peter's in Rome. And then in 846, they threatened Rome a second time. Muslim armies had invaded Italy. They took possession of a great part of Spain, and they were threatening the rest of Europe. And were it not for battle heroics, all of Christendom would have lain under Muslim domination. But when the cry came to recapture the Holy Land, then Pope Urban II in 1095 made a speech in which France was to lead the Christian world into war with Islam. Over and over in his speech, he uttered the words, God wills it, God wills it. Let me quote a part of that speech. He said, it is the will of God. Let these words be your war cry when you unsheath the sword. You are soldiers of the cross. Now, I wish I could make the crusades go away. Urban granted absolution to all the crusaders, including the sins that they would commit on this holy crusade. And so they went raping and pillaging, knowing that their sins had already been forgiven by a papal decree. The whole period is shameful. So imagine you're sharing the good news of the gospel with someone and he or she responds, well, religion fuels wars. I think it's a bad thing. Now, depending on where you live, especially in some of the larger cities in our country, the attitude is overwhelmingly secular and religion is seen in almost entirely negative terms. I think the best thing is not to become immediately defensive. And I think the best thing is to begin by asking two very important questions about religions and wars. Here's the first question. It's whether your friend thinks it's true of all religions. For instance, do they think the Amish and their religion really does inspire war? I begin the conversation this way. What if someone were to say, I think science is an evil thing. I mean, after all, it was science that split the atom and gave us nuclear weapons. I mean, without science, we would not have pollution, the ability to steal someone's identity, the ability to rob someone of their privacy. Science gave us the internet. The internet gave us, well, pornography, 
the ability to spy on private citizens, and the ability to clean out any number of bank accounts without ever having to break into a bank. Now, we could make the case that science has provided us with global travel and thus increasing the possibility of a global pandemic. It's made militaries capable of launching drone strikes on people from across the globe, killing done by kids in a small room with joysticks in their hands. Science and the technology that has come from it has given us the ability to kill at a level that previous generations would not have thought possible. But of course, something else is also true. Science has given us medicine, it's harnessed electricity, it's contributed to a standard of living in which the common person now has a better life than kings in the ancient world. And that thing called the internet, you know, it's made harder for dictators and butchers to hide their crimes. And this is the point. Not all science is the same. Isn't it therefore more than likely that the same is true about religion? When someone says religion causes war, isn't that just bigotry? Imagine hearing of a Chinese man who commits a murder and then saying, Chinese men commit murder. Well, that's bigotry. The failure to distinguish religious beliefs is also bigotry. How could anyone be a warmonger who actually believed and practiced what Jesus taught when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Indeed, when it comes to the Christian religion, there simply is no organization in the world that has done more to build hospitals, promote literacy and slavery, lift the cause of the poor, and to be the conscience of the world. The term religion, by the way, is seldom used in the Bible, but it is found in James 1, 26 to 27. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, it may be that we understand the world religion in, in very different ways. Most dictionaries tend to think of it in terms of a belief and a worship of something greater than human beings, be that a god or a group of gods or some kind of a spiritual force. I mean, the problem with that, of course, is that this definition covers so much ground. What James is saying is that worthwhile religion or pure and undefiled religion at its most basic keeps a person from slander and forces him to care for those who are less fortunate in this world. And so concern for the poor, involvement in charities, the act of giving sacrificially in order that others be helped and benefited, that is at the heart of what's meant by good religion. Pure religion avoids greed, taking advantage of others. It requires things like humility, having a view of self that is unpretentious and modest. Listen to James 3, 14 to 18. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, since the original Bible didn't have chapter and verse divisions, let me carry right on to the next chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. See, there are two keys here. 
According to James, the wisdom from above, the wisdom that God gives, is found in chapter 3, verse 17. Notice his marks of identification. The wisdom from above is first pure. Now, pure means that it's unmixed, that it does not contain ulterior or hidden motives. Then it's peaceable, or it doesn't give rise to tensions that unnecessarily divide people. Then says James, it's gentle, it's not harsh. James then adds, it's open to reason. See, one of the charges people often make is that the more religious a person becomes, the more unreasonable he or she becomes. But James says that's not pure religion, that's worthless religion. Think of the difference between a bond in which you invest your money wisely and what's called a junk bond, and that's the idea. There really is such a thing as junk religion, and it results in people becoming increasingly irrational and closed to reason. But, says James, when you see that, you're not seeing pure religion. It's just junk religion. Now, here's the question. Do people who operate according to what James calls the wisdom of this world, that is, fallen sinful wisdom, do they find it helpful to use religion to fuel their hatred? And the answer is, yes, they do. Claiming that God is on your side as you bring harm to others is a very effective vehicle indeed. It does inspire irrational hatred. It does shut down dialogue. But to say that's what all religion is, is patently untrue, and it expresses bigotry. But that leads us to the second question about religion and wars. Is it only religion that fuels wars? See, wouldn't it be better to be honest about the various factors that fuel war? Honesty demands that we acknowledge that official, state-sanctioned atheism has much blood on its hands as well. Indeed, nation-states who strongly express the supremacy of their ideology over others and who demonize others need to be considered when it comes to the fuel that, that gives rise to war. It might be surprising to some to think that, that a world without religion, I mean the one that John Lennon sang about, is far more prone to war than the one that has religion. June 2020, Back to the Bible Canada will be partnering with Back to the Bible India to conduct its third annual Bible teaching conference hosting hundreds of Indian pastors across India, beginning in Delhi, then moving to Hyderabad and Chennai. Under the leadership of Dr. John Newfeld, pastors will learn the discipline of effectively teaching the Bible and sharing the gospel. This year, you can sponsor the attendance of an Indian pastor who may otherwise not have the resources to attend for only $55. It includes the cost of the conference, resources, travel, accommodations, and food. What a great investment in the church. Join us in equipping pastors in India. Call with your gift to support international initiatives or to send one or two or more pastors to the India Bible Teaching Conference this June. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit sendapastor.ca or backtothebible.ca. The 20th century saw the rise of official state-sanctioned atheism doing more bloodshed in the name of anti-religion than ever a religion accomplished. Consider the regimes of communism in the former Soviet Union and then in China. Millions upon millions were massacred in the name of atheism. And that number is far higher than any other war. 
I mean, consider also that after the wars and the revolutions were done, that during the years 1966 to 1976, about 500,000 people were executed for offenses against Chairman Mao. I mean, that's appalling. But that doesn't take into account the years from 1958 to 1962, in which Maoist communists committed genocide against their own people, probably resulting in the deaths of between 18 and 45 million people. It's one of the worst mass killings in human history and had nothing to do with religion. And it was inspired by the idea that there is no God to watch or care or call us before his bar of justice. I'm only making the point that the real issue is the human heart, guided by wisdom from below, in which passion and murder can be excited by any ideology. The horror of the human heart is the issue, not religion. But religion or any ideology can be used as fuel. So before we go on, let's step back and examine what many of us would call a very difficult subject. Yes, but what about all of those wars in the Old Testament? You know, I was recently speaking with an atheist, and, and he pointed out exactly that. So let's read one of the texts that, that atheists love to use. Deuteronomy 7, 1-2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. This say those who don't like the Bible. That's an example of the religious warfare we should all fear. Now, before we answer, let's acknowledge that these are indeed horrible things. But before we condemn this text, let's at least do what James said we should do. Let's let our wisdom be reasonable, and let's examine what the text actually teaches us about wars in the Old Testament. Let me offer up three clarifications about Old Testament wars. The first, all Old Testament wars are limited in scope. Now, whether you agree with them or not, let's at least acknowledge what the text says. The wars are about the promised land. That is to say, they are geographically bounded. If you read through the text, you're going to find that Israel refuses warfare against the nations that are on her border. For instance, consider Numbers 20, 14 to 17. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus is your brother Israel. You know all the hardships that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. So no war here, not with Edom that bordered on the territory of Israel. Why? Simply because it was outside of the boundaries that God had promised Abraham about 400 years earlier. The war was to be with nations that inhabited the promised land and none other. So why do I mention that? Because this is not a text about global jihad. This war is limited in scope, limited in the actual area in which it takes place. But there are other limitations as well. Notice that even though God promised the land to Abraham, God told Abraham that he would not give the land to him immediately. 
It would not happen for a long time. And why? Well, Genesis 15 verse 16 says, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God would not give the land to Abraham until the present descendants were so depraved that their behavior would merit judgment. So however you hear about these wars, it's clear that these nations were being punished by God and Israel was being used to do so. And archaeological studies have found that the cultural practices of these people were incredibly depraved so that life was not worth living. See, how many of us today would condemn armies fighting ISIS today, even to the point of utterly driving them out? Well, not many. So when I say the wars of the Old Testament are limited, I say they deal only with that specific case, meaning limited to the promised land and limited in the time period in which they would occur. All other wars in the Old Testament are in fact defensive wars. So here's what I would say to someone who's offended by what they read that at least acknowledge the fact that they are limited in scope. But there's more to say. I would add second, that the Old Testament wars are unique. That is to say that what God does through Israel does not have application to other nations. Now pay close attention to what God promised Abraham. In Genesis 12 verses two to three, he says, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so as 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and the Old Testament story tells of the beginnings of a plan of God to bring a blessing not just to Israel but to the whole world. So, If any other nation, be that Canada or the United States, or any other nation claims to be God's nation and then uses Old Testament texts to justify their action in warfare, they are in fact misusing the Bible. And that brings us back to the question of what causes wars. It's not the Bible that causes wars, it's man's evil heart. And then the evil heart chooses any ideology and will even misuse the Bible to do its wickedness. There's one more thing that needs to be said about those Old Testament wars. Yeah, they're violent. Yes, they are sometimes seemingly quite cruel. But remember another principle. They are third, never waged for the conversion of people. And I say that because as you know, the idea of forced conversion has a very long history. Islam in its early days grew primarily through military conquest. Much of Europe after Constantine came to faith through conquest, forced conversion. But that's not how the Bible reads. None of the battles were about forced conversion. In fact, the very text about utterly destroying the Canaanites proves that point. The great danger for Israel is that they would worship the gods of the nations around them. For Israel, the conversion of others, as for example, we see in the conversion of Ruth, is an entirely voluntary matter. Or consider Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 to 7. It's a command for Israel to keep the law of God. And here's what it says. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? See, the point is that the law of God and Israel's faithful keeping of that law should be the cause of nations to want to know more about Israel's God. Faithfulness to their God was meant to draw nations around it in a voluntary fashion. By the time we come to the New Testament, the situation becomes entirely plain. 
Listen to Jesus' words to Pilate recorded in in John 18, verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so the story of the New Testament progresses, and as it does, we see the remarkable courage of the apostles and of the early Christians evangelizing and sharing the good news of Jesus. You know, at times they're being persecuted, and at other times they're being put to death. But as Stephen, the first Christian martyr, prayed, as he was being stoned to death, and it's recorded in in Acts 7, verse 60, it says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said that, he had fallen asleep. And so his last words to his persecutor reminds us of what Jesus said as they were nailing him to the cross. Indeed, the call to love their enemies always went with the relentless preaching of the gospel. See, the very nature of the Christian faith is not to seize political power, but rather to use the weapons of love and of persuasion and of compassion for the suffering and continually returning back to the power that's invested in the cross of Jesus. The Christian faith is not a faith that incites warfare. It is a faith rather that incites love and concern for others when it is truly practiced. John, as you were speaking, I was wondering, you know, in this day and age, it just seems like whenever people talk about war, particularly, you know, in university cultures and those types of things, it always seems to be attached to religion. Does religion get sort of unjustly persecuted in respect to war these days? Well, certainly, I mean, you know, as I had already mentioned, people always will go back to either the Crusades or some other, you know, uh, atrocity that was committed in the name of religion. And it's just undeniable. So, you know, I think we just begin by saying that. But I think what's also just as undeniable is that ideology uh, and extremist ideology uh, does the same thing. And as I had made mention of the fact that atheism, uh, state-sanctioned atheism, has created such barbarism that it's hard to even put it into words. So I think it's right to say that you know, the, the kind of religion will make a difference. And we should also say the kind of ideology will make a difference. So uh, when Christ taught us to love our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us, when he taught us the, the way of love, we can hardly say that following Jesus creates war. I know that there have been Christians that have done war, but not following Jesus. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. February is a critical month for raising funds to support the international ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. The primary focus continues to be India and surrounding areas, providing Bible teaching resources that include the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, aired and distributed across India, throughout much of Asia and the Middle East. Other efforts include partnering with Back to the Bible India to re-establish a significant, vibrant and sustainable expression of ministry. This month, we're praying that you'll join us in reaching our budget of $75,000. And to celebrate these efforts and as our free gift to you, we want to send you a limited edition music CD created specifically for Back to the Bible Canada called Songs of Zion. This is an inspirational CD performed by friend of Back to the Bible India, violinist Shalem Christie. 
Call today for your free gift to support these international efforts and to request your CD gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.